0: Hey everybody, it's Brad here. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to take a minute and let you guys know about our coaching program we run here at MacroZinc. We believe that every person on the planet deserves to live their healthiest and best life. A qualified nutrition coach and personal trainer can be the key to living that life. At MacroZinc, we provide fully customized one-on-one nutrition coaching and online personal training that has changed the lives of 10,000 people and counting. We offer a two-week free trial for our nutrition coaching and you can get started risk-free today. Just go to macrosinc.net slash services and sign up. Let's get into the show. Welcome back to episode number four of season two of the My Podcast. Today, we're talking about how to protect your heart, Otherwise, how to think about cardiovascular disease, why in business you either need to be first, be smarter, or cheat, and we don't cheat. And we're going to talk about the ratio of curiosity to ego. Let's get into the show. Jumping right into the nutrition insights today. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about a physiology component, and we'll talk about nutrition as it relates to it. So, I want to talk a little bit about cardiovascular disease and specifically like how do you really think about it? Um so the the title that I put in the show notes of this segment is protect your heart colon how to think about cardiovascular disease. And we talked about this a little bit in season 1 uh probably in a couple episodes, but I really want to do a little bit deeper dive into some of just the ideas and thought processes around cardiovascular disease. And how it "quote unquote" forms—I don't really like using that word, but that's, that's the best way I can kind of describe it. I guess the process by which it occurs maybe is a little bit better way to say that. Um, and really, just kind of talk a little bit about how diet and exercise, like lifestyle interventions, can affect your risk for cardiovascular disease. So, one of the first places I want to start this conversation is we kind of have this false notion that cardiovascular disease is only a disease of the modern world. Um. And it is true that the modern environment has increased the rates of cardiovascular disease, probably accelerated the process, and our hyper-focus and awareness on it has brought to light a lot more kind of diagnostic power and searching for cardiovascular disease. But I want to make it very clear that cardiovascular disease has been around as part of the kind of human condition for a long time. In fact, there's papers that have been published in Nature that show that there is like arterial calcification, which is one of the cardiovascular disease processes that occurs um, for thousands and thousands of years, right? Um, Like definitely not modern times. Like here's a paper, it's published in Nature in 2013. Title is "Mummies reveal that clogged arteries plagued the ancient world." Basically, what they did is um, they looked at a population of 137 different mummies. And that goes from um, Egyptian, Peruvian, ancestral Puebloans of the Southwest Americas, and people in the Aleutian Islands. So they, these are people who are like, in the Egyptians in this time frame. they definitely were more kind of agriculture-based than you had people who were more hunter-gatherer based. So this isn't like that whole, oh, we switched to grain and agriculture. It's definitely like a good mix of people. And that 34%, so 47 out of 134 mummies had definite or probable atherosclerosis. So like calcification and calcified plaques in the walls of artery or along the expected course of an artery. So this is something that's been around for, for, I don't want to say forever, but a very long time. And this makes sense when you think about how cardiovascular disease forms in the body, and how we really should think about it. So, one of the things that I want to kind of just set the stage with is people need to think about cardiovascular disease itself as a process, right? You see the physical manifestation in calcified plaques, in you know clogged arteries, in you know cardio. Uh, gosh, I can't even think of the word hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I did my dissertation in that area, so I should be able to pronounce that. Um, But it is a process that occurs over long periods of time. And we know this from like a molecular physiology level. And we also know this from kind of a like logic thought process, right? There is a very good reason why people who are older... Have higher rates of cardiovascular disease. It's a de- it's a disease that takes a long time to manifest in terms of like the process is a buildup process, and the process is continual exposure to risk process. And so it takes a long time for this to manifest. Now it can manifest earlier in life, it can manifest later in life. It depends on, you know, your physiology, the rate of exposure to risk, all sorts of things. But it's really important to understand that it's like a process that manifests over a long period of time. And the key idea to understand is that it really is about risk accumulation over a lifespan. Not a single individual risk at a given point in time, but risk accumulation over a lifespan. So for example, here's just some things that we know contribute to cardiovascular disease. We know that smoking contributes to cardiovascular disease. We know that having high cholesterol is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Now, we can have a separate podcast talking about the mechanisms of cholesterol and cardiovascular disease and whether it's LDL or LDLP or that's a different discussion. But we know that regardless, having high levels of lipids in your blood is an increased risk factor, which means if they are present, your risk of being diagnosed with cardiovascular disease in the five years following that test is substantially higher than somebody else normal, right? So it's, it's a risk measure, not necessarily a causal mechanism measure, right? Um, So we have smoking, lipids, blood pressure, blood sugar, genetics. There are genetics that increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. They associate to a lot of metabolic things and then kind of overall metabolic state. Um, And there's some other things. We'll just take those as kind of the top, let's just say six. Now, it's really the accumulative exposure to those risk factors over time, right? Do you have a 60-day period of your life where you have elevated blood lipids? Do you have a five-year period? Do you have a 10-year period? Did you smoke for a year? Did you smoke for 20 years? Did you have high blood pressure for a year for 20 years? Did you have high blood sugar for a year or 20 years? Did you have... I mean, your genetics are obviously your whole lifespan. Did you have type 2 diabetes where you have disordered metabolism for a year, for two years, for five years, for 10 years? And so the best way to think about cardiovascular disease and its development is the progression of risk over your lifespan, right? So if you maintain you know, a healthy body weight, your blood lipids, your blood pressure, your blood sugar, and you don't have any disordered metabolism your whole life, you're going to have on the lower end of the spectrum for cardiovascular disease risk. But your risk is never going to be zero because it's a process that's part of physiology, right? You have lipids floating around your body. You have blood pressure changes. You have genetics, you have clotting, things that are going on in your body that can contribute to you know, some of these plaques. Um, you have a lot of things that can occur, right? So there's a reason where you can be an otherwise healthy, fit 40-year-old and, and drop dead of a heart attack, right? But there's things you can do to mitigate your risk. Um, and I gave a lecture on this. And I should probably do this like as a live lecture with all the slides and everything um, in our group because so I think it's an interesting discussion. But those are the things to think about. right? You can change the trajectory of that risk based on how you mitigate the different risk factors. right? Do you have one risk factor that's elevated, or do you have all five? And how long have you had those? So that's really the way to think about cardiovascular disease. One is, it's a process that really, for all intents and purposes, is kind of the manifestation of regular human physiology. The rate at which that disease progresses or initiates, and then progresses is a function of the risk factors, right? And we talked about those and I can give you guys a full list of those. I think it's like, you know, 15, 20 key risk factors. And then how are those managed over the course of, of time? Um, so how does lifestyle affect cardiovascular disease risk? So really there's there's two main ways that lifestyle and we'll call it diet and exercise affect cardiovascular disease. There's directly and indirectly. I want to talk about the indirect first because I think that's a little more straightforward, right? If you diet, I'm just gonna use that term very loosely. Let's say you have calorie restriction, you reduce calories, and that drives you to lose weight. What that's gonna do is that's going to lower your BMI, it's gonna lower your lipids. It's going to lower your blood pressure. It's going to lower your fasting blood sugar. It's going to improve your overall metabolism, right? And that's you've basically reduced five of the main risk factors for cardiovascular disease pretty substantially just through diet alone, right? So you've drastically reduced risk factors, which reduce your overall risk. Now, it doesn't prevent you from getting cardiovascular disease, but it does reduce your overall risk factors and that kind of like risk load over time, right? That's that's one. Exercise, same thing, right? It can help drive a calorie deficit. It can affect your blood pressure directly, right? We know that exercise, regardless of weight loss, can lower systolic blood pressure, you know, two to three millers of mercury. Um, it alone can improve your kind of acute and chronic blood sugar management. Um, it can improve overall metabolism. So both diet and exercise can have profound and substantial effects on. Um you know, risk factors for cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular disease kind of indirectly through those. they also can have direct effects, right We know that dietary modifications can change how your body metabolizes things. Metabolism in the body is a direct causal link to cardiovascular disease, right so that's one exercise. We know that a big part of risk for cardiovascular disease is kind of your heart's. Capacity, um, your heart's morphology, and you know the usage rate of your heart. And we know that exercise actually can improve all of those things, right? You can improve your cardiac output. Your stroke volume increases with aerobic exercise. Um, your metabolism in your heart, like how the ratio of burning carbohydrates to fatty acids, is different in your heart than other organs, and exercise improves that, so it's not so pathological. Um, <clears throat> exercise can help remodel your heart in beneficial ways, whereas kind of lack of exercise and being overweight can remodel, actually change the structure of your heart in bad ways. So those are the ways that we should think about cardiovascular disease and how diet and exercise affect it. It's both directly and indirectly through reducing risk and risk factors and actually directly affecting the cardiovascular system itself. So that's the Nutrition Insight for the day. Uh, We'll take a quick break and we'll come back to Business Insights. All right, as we jump into this business insight, I want to just play a quick movie clip for you guys, because this is kind of the where I got this idea for this segment from. I haven't watched this movie in a while, but I was just thinking about this idea the other day, um, specifically as it relates to kind of where MacroZinc is in the history of its company, um, you know, its, its company life, and some of the thought processes I've had just around building the company um, kind of alongside, you, know, the rest of the team and just kind of seeing ourselves in the industry. And I'll just want sort to of play this short clip for you guys, and then we'll kind of talk about it. What have I told you since the first day you stepped into my office? There are three ways to make a living in this business. Be first, be smarter, or cheat. Now, I don't cheat. And although I like to think we have some pretty smart people in this building, it sure is a hell of a lot easier to just be first. So, that clip is from the movie Margin Call, where they all kind of everybody comes into the boardroom in the middle of the night. And this is really talking about the 2008 financial crash. And, you know, basically they were the first people to see that all of these kind of mortgage backed securities and these, uh, you know, collateral default is it, credit debt obligations. So, all these things that kind of cause a financial crash. They were basically the first. In this movie, they are the first person to see what was really going on. So they dumped all their positions on other people to just unload all of their risk. Um, and it's always just awesome to hear Jeremy Irons talk in anything he does. He's just such a good actor. But um, really, just this idea of... When you think about business, the way to succeed is you either have to be first, you have to be smarter, or you have to cheat. Now, obviously, like he said, we don't cheat. Some people do. It always ends up biting him in the butt. But there's there's kind of this idea of be first or be smarter. Now, I wanna give you examples of both and just give some nuance and some context to those. There's a difference between being first, being early, and being a me too. Now, I think there's a huge amount of benefit in the business world of being early, but sometimes I feel like being first isn't always the best option. And I'll tell you what I mean about that. Look at um like Facebook, right? Facebook was not the first social media. There was social media before that. The biggest one before that, and I'd say probably the first real true social media experiment was MySpace, right? MySpace and Facebook not that different. Facebook was early, right? They were very very early in that game. MySpace, let's just say they were first. They didn't. They didn't become Facebook, right? Facebook was early in the adoption process, um, but they weren't first. But they won because they were early. Instagram was the same thing, right? Before Instagram, there was Tumblr. Tumblr was really the first like picture-based social media app. Instagram wasn't first, but they were very early. Um you know i'm thinking in in the online coaching space right we weren't the first to do it we were very early in doing it at scale right we were not very early in terms of like doing any online coaching right people were writing blogs before facebook right but somebody took that idea and built it out so we weren't the first in the online coaching space we were early in the online coaching company space right there's there are there individual trainers doing stuff Um, But we were really early in adopting that, right? We started like officially, I mean, 2016 was really when we first started like doing anything in this space. 2017 was when we took first clients. That was well before everything moved online with the pandemic. I mean, we had a three year head start with those things. Um, So being first and being early, are definitely a you know we call it a first mover advantage that's the kind of business school term which it's really funny one of our employees um she's getting her MBA right now which is awesome i'm super excited for her she's no matter what she does she's going to crush it in life she's great but she was interviewing me the other day um and for like a, a class project and we were just talking and it's just it was just funny because there was all the like business school jargon and stuff that we were like talking about and um it was just kind of a, a funny experience where you know neither Jay or I have our MBAs um and we're the people running the company so it's just pretty funny. But um yeah so being first versus being early I think being early is critical um but being first depending on the industry may not be critical. Now if you're on a time sensitive asset like in the movie obviously you have to be first you're kind of screwed but um being early is definitely a huge piece. And that means you don't have to be the revolutionary thinker. You just have to be able to spot what things are worth pursuing when something is new, right? Obviously, crypto was something that you didn't have to be the guy to invent it. You just had to be the guy to be like, Hey, this could be something I'm going to put $500 in Bitcoin back in 2011 or 2010 or 2009, right? Um, So being early and being first are always big advantages. Now, being smarter. Kind of like the movie said, there's always going to be somebody smarter than you, right? And it's very, very, very rare that you're going to be the smartest person in any industry and you're going to solve the problems that nobody solves. However, that doesn't mean it's not possible. Um, I can think of maybe... Gosh. Two to three businesses who were not first, and definitely were not early, but they succeeded because they were by far the smartest people in that industry. Um, and the the two people I can think of off the top of my head are people you recognize. One is Steve Jobs. I think Steve was by far the smartest person in the personal computing space, and he was a genius, like a Generational genius of a understanding what people wanted, even though they didn't know they wanted it, and b people who didn't know, people who didn't even want it. He basically forced them to want it, right, by creating a social movement around computation and personal computers that everybody wanted that, even if they didn't want it. So he was the genius in that regard. Now, the second person, um, you know, regardless of. What you think about him, and there's a lot of people who don't like him for some reason. Some are valid, some are just crazy ideas. But Elon took you know almost century old now industries, right? The car industry is over a century old, and believe it or not, the rocket industry is it's almost a century old now. Um, right? Warner von Braun was developing rockets in the 1930s. Um, in early nineteen forties. So we're almost approaching the century for rocket engines. And Elon by far had the smartest approach to revolutionizing automobiles and space travel. And so it is possible to be smarter, but you really I mean if you want to revolutionize an industry, it's way easier to be early than it is to be the smartest person on the planet doing it. So just some business insights, you know, I think um, you know, as people think about if starting businesses, depending on what scale you want to be at, um, be first or be smarter and generally, being first is much easier, and you don't necessarily have to be first first. Um, you just have to be early. so um, that's it for the business inside. We'll take one more quick break and then we'll come back and we'll jump into the what am I learning today? What am I learning today? So, today I'm learning something actually from somebody else. I was listening to a podcast this weekend while I was at the gym. Um, As much as Jay likes to joke, occasionally I do go to the gym. Um, I was listening to a podcast and somebody said something I thought was really, really interesting. It's this idea of curiosity versus ego and how you are an effective leader. Is not so much the absolute amount of ego you have; it is the ratio of your curiosity to your level of ego, and the way that he put it and framed it in context was very interesting. So, if I think about, if you want to be a leader of a massive organization, let's say it's a Fortune 500 company. Let's just say it's let's say it's a medium-sized business, fifty to a hundred people. Let's say it's a medium to large business, a hundred to two hundred fifty people. Let's say it's a Fortune 500 company. Right, you're leading. 5000 people. Let's say it's you're the president of the United States. So let's say I, I don't know. You're some you're in some very high position of leadership. In order to be successful at a very high level, you have to have I would argue you have to have a very high level of ego, right? You have to believe in yourself that you can do a job that you know by definition if you are leading 100 people 99% of people cannot do. You are the person who has to do that job. You have to believe that, you have to lead with that level of bravado and you have to show the leadership qualities of, "Hey, I'm capable. I can do this. I will lead. You should follow me," etc. Now, what happens to people is that ego becomes a problem. And the best way to kind of temper that, maybe not the best way, but A way is with curiosity. And what curiosity does is it allows you to basically tell yourself, hey, I have the skills, I have the knowledge, I have the tools, I have everything that I need to lead these people. But I'm also curious enough that I know I may not have every answer all the time. There may be questions I don't know how to answer. There's a lot of unknowns in this world that I could maybe use some help with. Other people may have interesting ideas. Oh, hey, here's something I hadn't thought about, right? And so if you want to be successful, you need a high level of ego because you really have to trust and believe in yourself. But if you want to be a successful leader, you have to have a very high level of curiosity. So your curiosity-ego to ratio has to stay sustained as you continue to grow as a person, um, you know, what's interesting is I find myself in a lot of meetings in our company. I would say I probably talk five percent of the time, maybe I try to do a lot of listening, and there's a lot of times where people will bring up ideas and I will just say, "Hey, you know, I don't know the answer to that immediately off the top of my head, but that's a that's a great point. That's a great question. that's a great insight. Let's do a little bit of digging independently." Um, And let's circle back on that and have a conversation about what that looks like to implement. Um, Or, like, hey, it sounds to me like you've got a really clear idea of what you think this might look like in order to be successful. I think you've probably given this a lot more thought than I have at this point. I think my perspective and experience can probably help sharpen your ideas. But why don't you kind of take the first crack at it and bring your ideas to me? Because you probably have a fresh perspective. You've probably given this a lot more coherent thought. You can probably bring a pretty shovel ready idea, product, project, et cetera, to the table. And then you and I can work together to kind of refine it, implement it, think about things that maybe you haven't thought about before we press press go or press roll on it. Um so that's what I'm thinking about today, or what I'm learning today, is just think about, you know, as you're going through whatever you're going through and kind of your leadership life is. Ego is important. I think ego matters. I think you actually do need ego um, because you have to have the confidence to succeed and to execute. But I think you need to temper it with curiosity. And sometimes that curiosity looks a little bit like humbleness. So that's it for the show today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This is episode number four. I'm Dr. Brad. I'll see you guys later.